Welcome to this edition of the John Papaloni Show. Today, I have special guest, David Foster. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. Absolute pleasure to have you. Let's start off the podcast with my routine question, which is who you are, what you do, and how you got there. You know, it's funny. That question itself, 25 years ago, would have earned the answer. I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Ah. (laughs) I am a serial addicted real estate junkie. Um, So my life has been crafted around real estate of all types. Um, But 25 years ago, I kind of spun things off from being just a real estate investor to being what is called a qualified intermediary for tax-deferred real estate exchanges. And that was when we joked with people about having to kill them. Because at that point in time, nobody knew this was possible. Here's a part of the tax code in the U.S., that's been around since 1920, that allows you to sell investment real estate, follow a process and go buy investment real estate. And when you do so, you get to indefinitely defer paying your tax on the profit or depreciation recapture. I mean, boom, what a concept. It felt illegal. And it felt like one of those things where, yeah, we could tell you, but you know, nobody knew about it. Well, since that time, now we're seeing about a million exchanges a year being done by people because they figured it out, that that's the hugest thing in the world, benefit-wise, from the federal government. Absolutely, right? And that's the thing, right? Like, I mean, I'm in Canada, as you know, and we don't have that. Our government just basically says, we're going to bend you over and take the taxes, and we don't care how many times you do it. (laughs) It's true. They actually all want you to do it more often. You know, could you do it again? Could you sell again? Exactly. Well, I'm actually in mourning right now, John, because I did a math calculation that just made me sad. You know, after 35 years, I still got sad. My (laughs) very first real estate transaction is I bought a duplex in Denver, Colorado. I fixed it up. I turned it into a duplex. It was a single family. Fixed it up, turned it into a duplex, and then sold it. And when I sold it, I made enough profit. My tax was about $30,000. Now, I didn't realize that that was going to happen because I didn't know I had a silent partner named Uncle Sam until my accountant told me about it. But the calculation I did last week when someone was asking me about it is, are you familiar with the rule of 72? This is the coolest little math trick you'll ever do. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar s- with it, but uh, let everybody yeah. know just for those in not. Yeah, you take 72 and you divide it by the interest rate you receive on an investment. And that tells you how long it takes for your money to double. How cool is that? So you invest 70 at 10%. And in, if you get if you get 10% on your investment, your investment will double in 7.2 years. 72 divided by 10. If you get 9%, your investment doubles in eight years. How cool is that? I could play with that one forever in a bar. But here's the sadness. I said, I paid $30,000 in tax 30 years ago. If I would have had that money to invest on my own for 30 years, making 10%, which is basically what I've always made on real estate or more by the time you count everything, I would now have from that one transaction over $500,000. What a bonehead mistake. (laughs) But it was only because of that that I discovered section 1031 of the code. And as a frustrated accountant, I said, this is the answer. So from that day, we've been doing them for ourselves. And there's a story there that's awesome. And I've been doing them for clients. And the savings is incredible. But the compounding effect is what's so, so key. Yep, I agree. And I got you beat. My uh, biggest payout was 66000 And it was not In taxes. Yeah. You know, that's the two things, two things that people like to brag about. How much they paid in tax and how much they saved in tax. I'd rather be one of the latter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't like bragging about how much I paid. I was not happy, believe me. Oh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, there you use the 72 rule there and figure out how much money you'd have now. Oof. Yeah, I, I don't even want to think about it because I'll cry on the podcast. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's madness, right? Like, it, it's, I, I, I don't get it. Like, it, it's just that, you know, the part of it that doesn't make sense to me, it's not that we pay taxes. I mean, come on. The only thing guaranteed is that you were born, you will die, and you will pay taxes. Those are the only three guarantees in life. Now, the part that's surprising is the fact that, or it doesn't make any logical sense, is we're continuously paying taxes. And this capital gains that they get 
is another tax that we've been paying when we've been paying taxes all along. Like we pay property taxes. That's a tax that's coming off the property. Now we're buying the property with after tax income. So that means they've had income tax. We pay a sales tax. So we've been taxed so damn much that theoretically that capital gains tax that they take it, it is an additional tax to the tax they've already collected on the house. Like it, it's, you know what I mean? Uh, it's it, yeah. madness. You know what I mean? Like now Canada has something that's even worse than the States. We have what's called a carbon tax, which is basically a tax on a tax. It's so ridiculous, right? Like how many taxes are we going to pay for the same thing that we bought once? Right. And so the idea is, right, we all want to try and minimize that tax bill as much as we can. And when we found the 1031 exchange, it changed our life. Personally, we were living in Colorado at the time. So now what's really strange is I'm a Kansas farm boy. My wife's from Minneapolis. We were living in Colorado and somewhere we got this wild hair to go buy a sailboat and sail the ocean. Where did that come from? But that became our goal. We wanted to raise our family on a sailboat. That first sale obviously was going to slow me down quite a bit. But yeah. then when we discovered the 1031 exchange, we built up our portfolio in Colorado. We did 1031 exchanges every time we sold something. Periodically, we would convert our primary residence, sell it, and convert one of our investment properties into a new primary residence. And by doing that, we moved our entire portfolio from Denver to Stamford, Connecticut to Florida. We were able to buy a boat with tax-free dollars and live on that 53-foot sailboat for 10 years with our four boys living off of income from our vacation rentals all purchased with tax-deferred dollars. Now, just the leverage alone of being able to use the tax dollars over the 10 years, cut our goal time in more than half. Yeah, for sure. Instead of having to wait 20 or 25 years, we were able to do it to the week in 10 from when we set the goal. Absolutely. Now, for any Canadian viewers or listeners, unfortunately, Canada does not have the 1031. You're going to pay that tax. That's just the way it is. But now, and also another thing that you said with the primary residence, where you're able to convert it, we used to be able to do that, but our famous liberal government that we have in power today changed that so that if you had a rental property or if you had a, a primary property, you sold it and moved into a rental property, it used to become your primary property and it used to work. Now what happens is if you had rented it up for 10 years and you move into that rental property and you now declare that as the primary, for the minute you move into it, it's a primary home. But for the 10 years that it's gained, cap you know it's appreciated from before you you know declared it a primary home you still pay the capital gains on that 10 years never used to be that way and a lot of times what used to happen is people used to move into a place renovate it was the primary home sell it buy another home move into it and they did that to stop that now they said it was to stop the abuse, but we know reality is they figured out we knew a loophole and they wanted to close it. Yeah. Now, full disclosure, in the U.S., it's similar. So if you do a 1031 exchange, you sell a property, you go buy a new property that um, you someday might want to live in and you rent it for two years, then there's a safe harbor from the IRS that you can convert that into investment, into your primary residence. You move into it and you live in it so that you have lived in it for two out of the previous five years. And if you've owned it for a total of five years, then you get to take your gain tax-free, prorated on the number of years you lived in it, just like you were talking about. Got it. So in our example, we convert a property, use it for rental for two years, moved into it, lived in it for three. Now, if you, did you own it for five years? Yep. Did you live in it for two? Well, we actually lived in it for three. So we would get 60% or three-fifths of the gain tax-free. Got it. If you live in it for eight years, you would get 80% of the gain tax-free. So they can try and get their piece, but there's always a way to make yours a little sweeter. Absolutely. Now, another little trick and uh, I, that I anybody watching wants, there is, and this is a, a lot of things that wealthy people do, there is no capital gains on loans. So ideally what ended up happening is, now for a disclaimer here, not an ideal time to do that with interest rates at 7%. But when interest rates are at 3%, the one way you can do things is 
maximize your loans, maximize your mortgage. If you have that rental unit and you've put down your down payment of 20%, five years later, you renewed and you renewed at 3%. Now all of a sudden you probably have 30% equity in it. What you do is you refinance it. So it's back to the 20%. You take the 10% out and that money is tax free because now you have a mortgage and you don't pay capital gains on a mortgage. Now, again, at 7%, I don't think that's wise. At 3%, it was fabulous. What are your thoughts? Well, one of the one of the common problems that people will come to me with is they would say, I want to sell and do a 1031 exchange, but I need money. I got to go buy my new project. I've got to put braces on my kids' teeth. I've got to do whatever. And so that's exactly the answer is, well, you can take the money and pay the tax, or you can put all the money in tax deferred and then do a refinance to pull out what you need. And usually, even in this interest environment, it's far cheaper to pay 20% long-term capital gains than it is to, or I'm sorry, it's far cheaper to do a cash-out refinance for a year or two than it is to pay 20% on that profit on day one. Correct. Usually about a four or five-year break-even. Yeah. So people are still doing those, that refinance. Absolutely. It's a great plan. The other one that I really love that you talked about that I want you to mention um, in our pre-podcast was the corporate structure that you've done Yep, between Canada and the States. That's huge for 1031 exchanges. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And I, again, at the end of the day, if a Canadian wants to buy into the United States, the biggest problem you're going to have is that you're a Canadian citizen. And right now, everyone's shitting on Canada, including me. Oh, wait a minute. I live here. Um, <laughs> no, but jokes aside, what ends up happening is when you're going there, you're going to have a tax problem because you're going to pay taxes in Canada and you're going to pay taxes in the U.S. The problem is the same money is getting taxed twice. Now, the other issue is if you have a rental unit in the States, we're going to use the state of Florida and you buy a place in Florida and it's a rental unit and you collect rent, you cannot get the rent directly. What ends up happening is your rent has to be collected by the lawyer who withholds the tax and gives you the balance. Now, the way to do that is you create the C-Corp and by having a C-Corp, it becomes an American entity. And by having that structure, the money stays in the C-Corp in the U.S. It becomes, it's an American entity that stays in America. The downside is you cannot bring the cash to Canada, at least not without paying the taxes again. But if you're an investment and your sole purpose is to invest, what difference does it matter which corporation holds the money? Because you're just trying to build assets, trying to build real assets, and trying to build over the long term. The one thing we have to remember is with real estate investing, it is not a short-term business. I know a lot of people talk about flips, but 90% of the people doing flips lose money. The ones that actually come ahead are the ones that play the buy and hold. Now, more often than not, as I said, 90%, losing flips. That doesn't, that means there's 10% that are making fortunes. But unfortunately we see the HGTV guys that are part of that 10% and we think everybody can do that. And it's not that simple. Nobody I know has lost money in real estate when they held it for 10 years. That's very true. And the other thing to piggyback on your structuring situation is that any U.S. tax paying entity can do regular 1031 exchanges very easily. So as long as it's a domestic entity, C-Corp, LLC, a limited partnership, whatever it is, if it's a U.S. taxpaying entity, it can do the 1031 exchanges. A foreign nationally, foreign taxpayer not paying U.S. tax has to do a very special kind of FERPTA 1031 exchange. They're very expensive. They're very difficult to achieve. But if all you do is what you said, set up a C-Corp, set up an LLC to own your real estate in the United States, then it is that entity that is selling and that entity that will be buying. And the 1031 is easy to do. Yeah, it's remarkable. And uh, it took me a very long time to learn this. I, uh, I've been trying to set up my corporation for two years now. And here's a kind of a funny story. I've talked to five different lawyers, five different accountants, and I even talked to a couple of mortgage brokers. And every single one of them gave me a different answer. Now, I have a mortgage license, and this is where the funny story comes in. So one lawyer tells me that uh, I could buy property, and I don't even need it to be in a corporation. Um, I can buy multiple ones. And I said, well, 
you know, for rental properties, does that make any sense? Oh, well, you don't have to. And I'm going, okay, well, what's the ramification of going over the border? Oh, none. It's just like buying here. And I'm going, wrong answer. Um, <laughs> and even I knew that was wrong. <laughs> so um, another one uh, told me that uh, you just register a corporation. It's no big deal. It's just register one from here and it doesn't make a difference. And I'm going, yeah, wrong answer. And I was trying to figure out even how to get into people's securities, like 401ks and RSPs over here. And um Every, nobody seemed to know that. And I got different answers. One person says, you can access security things by getting a mortgage license. So guess what I got? I got a mortgage license. And at that time, that seemed to be the lawyer that seemed to know, or the accountant, I can't remember which one it was, that seemed to know the most about it. But that person was still wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. There is benefits to me having my mortgage license. But the purpose of me getting it and the benefits are not the same thing. Now, with the benefits that I have it, yes, I would have still got it anyways, but I did not know. So I basically went to get an easy way to get into securities, and that's why I got my uh, mortgage license, figuring that'd be the easiest way, and I actually got a different benefit. Anyways, moving forward from that, so I seem to be going in circles to the point that I was just starting to feel like maybe I should just give up. I'm, you know, after talking to 10 to 12 people, getting all the circling, I had enough. I'm done with this. Right. And I'm thinking, I I mean, and that's me saying it, you know, me talking to myself, but uh, anybody who knows me knows I'm stubborn and I'm just trying to rationalize so I don't get angry about it. So what ends up happening is then I had somebody on my podcast, an accountant, somebody that uh, actually does my stuff, ironically. Well, someone who does my stuff now at the time they weren't and I was avoiding the person. And here's another tip of you get what you pay for in life. And uh, what I mean is I was avoiding that account and I was using other people based on money. He was a little pricey for for my real estate license. And um, because he was a little pricier, I decided to try somebody else. Now I'm getting into more complicated things and it never occurred to me to ask him. He, maybe he would know something. I had him on my podcast and I asked him questions and he was answering and he was answering the structure stuff, but I wasn't asking, I was talking about the structure. He answered the question I never asked them in a positive way. And I said, dear God, this guy knows what he's talking about. Right. And I said, Jesus, uh, I had this guy in my back pocket the whole time. And I never thought to reach out to him anyways. So finally, someone knew what he was doing. And there's my, and that's how I figured out all this stuff and how I learned how to set up this structure. But yeah, so I ended up getting a mortgage license. I ended up getting, doing all kinds of stuff. I have all kinds of different corporations, half of them I don't need. And, uh, you know, where if I call, you know, if I didn't try to save money, I wouldn't have spent dollars. That That is oh so true. It's like the classic story of, you know, eight blind men being led into a room and asked to describe the elephant. The IRS tax code's the elephant. And everybody's only going to get to know a little part of it. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, well, that's the other thing, right? Sometimes if you don't know what to ask, like, look, I was trying to do cross-border. First thing I should have asked is what areas do you work in? If they only work on one side, how would they know about the other side, right? So if, if you have somebody that kind of operates on both sides, you kind of get a general idea. And I always recommend that you verify information. Just don't take somebody at the word. When you get a couple of people that say the same damn thing, chances are you got the right one. That's been my experience. Absolutely. So moving forward, you got into, uh, I mean, obviously you're doing a lot of real estate investing. What was the attraction there, right? I mean, because nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to buy houses and I'm going to, uh, earn income so I don't have to work by buying houses. I mean, first of all, it's not that easy and I'm making it sound like it is, but there's always a unique attraction to it. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I grew up a farm boy in Kansas, like I said, and our family had assembled a large chunk of Kansas uh, through the Homestead Act of 1860 when the government was giving out land for free. And I had a chance growing up to watch different families, different people's experiences. Those who held onto the land, consolidated and added to it, and those who, as part of their estate planning, divided their holdings up amongst their children, who then divided their holdings amongst their children. And I watched the different impact that there was, and it became real clear that land is the gold. There's two golden commodities, gold and land. And there's two people in the history of the world that have always ruled the world, and it's those the bankers with the gold, and it's the landowners with the land. So I've always had that mindset. But when it really came to fruition was when we had our first child. And all of a sudden, priorities in life just changed. I didn't need a TV anymore. All I wanted to do was just spend time with this little guy. And we started to think 
Time is our greatest commodity, not money. How do we maximize that? How do we generate income in such a way that we can spend more time with our family? And as we looked at very, and we actually started and incubated various businesses and they all ended up being work and whatever. But then we finally just said, you know what? Let's go buy a property and let's let someone just pay us rent and we'll pretend we don't know them. <laughs> it was the closest thing to what we wanted to do. And it was the easiest thing to scale because of the tax advantages that the IRS gives you. So it's the greatest return that the tax code gives you. It's the easiest to get into. And it puts you in the class of the people who have always ruled the world. I said, it's a no-brainer. This is what I want to do. And so that's what we did. We embarked on a real estate investing journey that's involved new constructions and historic conversions and commercial properties and agricultural and land development. I never met a deal I didn't want to tackle. Got it. So you uh, diversified, basically. Yeah, which again is one of the strengths of the 1031 exchange that we can talk about. Actually, I've got a quiz if you want to take it. Let's do it. All right. So there's four D's of 1031 investing. We'll see how many of those four you can get right. The first one I'll give to you, it's defer. And the reason why that's a, an important D is because that first time when you defer by doing a 1031 exchange, you just started the clock on compounding interest. You're going to make money on the government's money. And every time you sell and do that, you're going to make money off the government's money, off the money you reinvested and off the tax off of that. So it's the old snowball that's rolling downhill. So the start to defer is so important, whether it's for a day or whether it's for a lifetime. People say, well, I got to pay it anyway, so why do it? Well, because one day of that money in my pocket is one day that I get to make the money off of it. 30 years on $30,000 is 500,000 bucks. Thank you very much. All right. So what do you think the second D is? I'm going to guess deduct. Deduct is a good one because that's the best tax break the IRS gives you, but it's not. Here it is. Defer. You may see a trend. Yeah. And the re yes. The first one was defer also. The second one is defer because the 1031 exchange will accommodate any real estate market. So when you talked about us diversifying, you can use the 1031 exchange to go from any place in the country to any place in the country. I got a ton of investors in Silicon Valley, sold their properties and did 1031 exchanges on these massive properties. And they followed this guy named Elon down to Austin, Texas and bought cheap land in Austin. You know what that's done for them? They've done pretty well. Yeah. So you could go anywhere in the country and you can buy any type of real estate in the country. Single family homes kind of stagnated out. Use a 1031 exchange and go buy multifamily. Sell agricultural land, go buy commercial. Doesn't matter. So see how it just opens the door to diversify all you want in any part of the real estate cycle. So important. All right, John, come on, bring it to me. What's the third D? I'm going to guess is defer. Yes, because not only does the 1031 exchange accommodate wherever you're at in the real estate cycle, it accommodates wherever you're at in your life cycle. When we're starting out, we generally have, we definitely have more energy than money and Brains isn't even on the chart yet. <laughs> but what are we able to do? Backbreaking work to make it work. So we're in acquisition mode, aren't we? Yep. We're able to buy that property that's cheap because I can fix it up. And then we keep accumulating more and more and more. Well, at some point in time, we start to have more money than energy. Our brains. And so we want to slow things down, don't we? So that's when you can take large numbers of property, sell them using a 1031 exchange to go buy one multifamily property where there's much less management or buy a commercial property where the tenant has the responsibility for all the taxes and maintenance. You can also look at towards retirement and 1031 year portfolio close to where you want to be in retirement ahead of time. So when you finally move out of Cincinnati to Sarasota, there's your four rental homes right there in your backyard, accommodating your retirement desire. The conversion process that we talked about, same thing. Whatever you're wanting to do goal-wise in your life cycle at that point, the 1031 exchange can accommodate. And when it does, it's going to let you continue indefinitely deferring tax on the profit. So what's the fourth D? Defer again. God. <laughs> Sad to say. That would be a great answer, but I tricked you. Ah. The fourth D is die. Damn. 
<laughs> exactly. Or damn, damn and die both work. Um, it's not my favorite topic. It's not my favorite way to save money, but we're all going there. So let's talk about it. When you pass away, again, this is as a U.S.-based taxpayer. When you pass away, your heirs inherit your property at what is called a stepped-up basis. So they get your property as if they paid market value for it on the day you died. When you die, all of that deferred tax over all those years is eliminated. You don't pay it. Your estate doesn't pay it. Your children don't pay it. They get your properties. And what can they do? Start over and start making money for themselves the exact same way. So that's why I am a firm believer in the defer, 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 and then die school of thought. Wow. It's a good order. It sets your heirs up. And it answers that question of the person that says, you got to pay it anyways. Why not just pay it as you go? Because every day the dollar's in my pocket, I make the money. And when I die, it goes away. So no, I don't ever have to pay it. And I won't. That is a little bit different than where I'm at. Now, here's what I mean by that. Now, in Canada, if you owe the capital gain, you still pay taxes no matter what, right? Where the difference is, and here's where the benefit of a corporate structure comes in. Now, if you have what's called a family trust, you can have anybody in that family trust. When you pass away, it goes to them. Therefore, that's, again, same concept, same uh, outcome, just done a little bit differently. Yep. Yep, absolutely. There's a bunch of ways to skin the cap, but it all comes down to God bless America. <laughs> they gave us these options. We've used them. My clients use them every day and we're happy. And you know what? It's good for the government too. This is not the kind of statute where you're getting away with something. The 1031 exchange does allow the investors that go through the, the process to save a lot of money on long-term capital gains. But the other side of that is that because that's available, there are many, many, many more real estate transactions that happen. The whole reason it was started in the 1920s was to allow young farmers to sell their farms and go buy bigger farms, which they wouldn't have been able to do if they had to pay the tax on their sale. So instead, they did the 1031 exchange was instituted and that let them do that. So what happens then? More transactions happen. More young farmers were able to buy their first farm. More bigger farmers were able to sell theirs to go buy something, which left room for the middle. Everybody was growing. That's what the U.S. wanted. And what they figured out, other than certain parts of every administration, is that for every dollar in capital gains that they give up, they're making many times that in two real estate transactions, two realtor commissions, two title insurance providers, two attorneys, two painters, two appraisers, two inspectors. There's a lot of jobs and a lot of ordinary income money that are created with every 1031 exchange. And so that's why it's been around for a hundred years and why as much as they'd like to talk every year about getting away from away with it, they will never do away with it. Yeah, let's hope not, right? I mean, I think you're right. Absolutely. There's way too much at, at stake. Look, let, let's be uh, frank here. And interest rates have gone up and it's gone up on pretty much everywhere across the world. Forget just North America. The whole world is experiencing that. But let's focus down on what's happening in the real estate market in North America, because I think what's happening in the States is parallel to Canada. Maybe a little bit minor differences, but we're going through the same thing. Interest rates are up. Affordability is down. And as a result, what ends up happening is there's fewer transactions. Fewer transactions, less taxes collected, less people working, more people will, you know, getting desperate, more troubles ahead. And that is the fundamental thing that we were just talking about. Now you take away that 1031 exchange in the States, what I'll end up happening is even fewer people will want to transact, which makes it even more of a deeper issue than what we have now. That's exactly right. And when that happens, there's another thing that people have not thought about, but because I've been involved in a lot of land planning projects with the cities and other municipalities, when there are fewer transactions, the transaction is the opportunity for the city and municipality to reassess for tax value. So as transactions go down, you have cities and counties nationwide whose revenue doesn't get to grow because the taxable value of their properties can't rise dramatically because there's no sales volume to back it up. Absolutely. And watch, uh, it can go even further, depending on how far down we go, we can ask for a reassessment. And if the property has dropped, your taxes will actually go down 
which basically means that your revenue has gone down there as well. So you lose all the income taxes from all the people working. In Canada, it's a land transfer tax. We have that as well. I don't know if the U.S. has that or not. Different states do, yes. Yeah. So the ones that have that, they lose the transfer tax on top of all that. Plus, <laughs> you know, plus you collect less municipal taxes or state taxes. You know, it, it's crazy, right? So there's no winning in crashing the market for anybody. That's exactly right. I think kind of the key takeaway from what we've been talking about is all along is that taxes bad, 1031 exchange, good. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, look, if more people can transact and they get rid of their single family home and they buy multiplex, that means more rentals, more rentals, more homes for people who don't have them, right? Like there's two sides to to that equation. It's not just that single family home that has one person living in it. You know, when, when we're developing and you're developing multifamily and you're developing, you know, units with 24 units, that's 24 families that have a place to go where without the transactions, without the breaks, None of that will happen. So it all adds up. It all equates. And 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 I think the system is made to, you know, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's made to recycle and recycle and recycle and just keep growing, uh, you know, overall. Yeah, I love the way that works. And it's uh, very fascinating. I think uh, Canada should adapt that too. Let's, let's file a petition here. <laughs> there we go. So with that being said now, so you're, um, at what stage are you in now? Like, I mean, like you brought up multifamily, which I like, I mean, I'm not, I'm a fan of single family homes to live in. I am not a fan of them as rental units. Now I'm not naive and stupid to believe that a person starting out, never bought a piece of property is going to go apply for a 24 unit building and get approved for that financing, making their $60,000 a year. I mean, I'm not that stupid. I know that's not going to happen. You have to start somewhere. So but I mean, aside from that, the long the long term growth shouldn't be multiple single families, in my opinion. It should be multifamily, and that's my thought. So, where's your where are you at now? What's your thoughts towards this? You know, I like to take what the market gives me, um, and so I'm a little bit different than you in that I've seen multifamilies being pretty frothy for a long time, right? And it is much harder to find good deals that work. So, okay, low hanging fruit. I do know that affordability is about its peak. Something's going to have to be done very shortly besides sticking people into multifamily properties. The hedge funds, the pension funds are buying the seven to 800 unit places like candy, which tells me there's a, there's a change in the, in the wind coming. The change that always happens is that when home buyers, and by that, I mean, primary residence people, when home buyers are forced out of the market, the government will intervene with strategies, with regulations, and with incentives to encourage single-family ownership. And I think our real estate market is just about at that point. Now, when that happens, what does that mean for the single-family market? It means that there's going to be more people trying to buy in it. So what does that mean for the single-family homes I own? They're going to become more expensive because prices are going to continue to go up. It's just a natural cycle. So anytime the government artificially intervenes, they create a demand artificially. That demand results in higher prices. Simple as that. So that being said, I'm a huge believer right now in single family homes. So I like to buy them where we can add a room to them, turn them from threes into fours. That seems to make it worthwhile. Um, I also like buying in college towns because education never goes away. It's about to be incentivized again as well. And here's a strange factoid why, because every full-time student in the United States is not counted on the unemployment numbers. Interesting. So you want to make unemployment look good? Get more students in school. You want to get more students in school? Offer them incentives to go. You want to offer more incentives to go? Then you let the, the colleges build buildings and offer more student loans. It's a cycle. And that's kind of where I'm seeing. Other than that, um, we're in the legacy building phase. So I am helping all of my younger relatives and children right now to buy their first property. And every one of them, my encouragement is go buy a multifamily property that's small, two to four units. You're going to live in one and we'll rent the other one out. That's the way to start 
a long time wealthy career of real estate investing. Absolutely. Now, let me be clear. I'm going to clear up a couple of things. Now, my statements about multifamily obviously is on the premise. So for anybody watching, I don't mean just go out and buy a building and says, oh, it's up for $2 million. Here you go. The numbers have to make sense. And when you're competing with those, uh, the Black Rocks of the world, you're not going to compete at the numbers. They can hold out a lot longer. They can overpay and not have them affected where I really doubt the average person can turn around and do that. So the numbers have to make sense. That's the bottom line. And you're right. At some point in time, that number will no longer make sense. And maybe it's already started. So again, you have to know your numbers before you do anything. So my premise is that the multifamily numbers work. They make sense. They still cash flow and there's still opportunity in them. And, you know, where to go changes throughout life. I mean, what works for you at 30 may not work for you at 40. What works for you at 40 will not work for you at 50. And it goes back to what I said. You have to start somewhere. I don't dislike family homes in the way that I actually hate the property. I just don't like the fact that you're solely depending on the one rent to pay the bill. Now, when you're doing a two to four unit, like you were saying, you can live in one Someone else pays the rent on the other side. And if they don't pay, you need a place to live anyway. So you're going to pay it to live. So it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, it doesn't matter out of principle because you're not a charity. But at the same time, at least you're not trying to pay for two homes. You're trying to pay for the home that you live in. And you can take action for the one that doesn't pay and uh, re-rent it to someone else. Absolutely right. Other than that, I'm in that stage now where I've got much more uh, more money than I have time and energy. But I still haven't found the brains yet. So I like agricultural land and raw land that can sit in the path of progress. Right. Absolutely. Now, actually, I got a good point here because, I mean, especially for the U.S., I mean, it's a, this is happening in Canada, but nowhere near to the levels of the United States. Office building, commercial office buildings. And, I mean, even retail buildings are like malls are being affected right now. Um, office buildings more than uh, retail, but both are being hit hard. Do you have any office, uh, you know, buildings in your portfolio and uh, you know how how's that working for you like is it uh, like have you been affected like i know san diego has been uh, you know basically destroyed from that perspective yeah it's working great for me because i don't have any <laughs> i've seen that coming for a long time <laughs> you know the pandemic it's not fair to the sector but the pandemic turned the lights on for everybody you know prior to that i, I don't know what you guys had up there but you could go into any city in america and for 200 bucks a month, you could buy a 10 by 10 cubicle or rent a 10 by 10 cubicle that you could call an office because it was seen as oh so important yeah. that you had an office that people could come and come to. And I, and I know well, like even you, John, you mentioned the importance of talking to people face to face. Yep. So you can, you know, stack them up. That's still an important thing. But the pandemic and the fact that we had to change that paradigm kind of loosened that up a little bit to where now it's not the be all end all that if I've actually got good researching skills, I can find out everything I need to know about you in 20 minutes on the internet and I'll know who you are and I'll know who the questions are to ask. So I don't need that small office. So I've kind of seen that crash coming yeah. for a long time. Indoor malls, they'll come back. They just have to be re-envisioned every 20 or 30 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what I don't what I don't have a handle on is the cost to do that versus hanging on to them long enough. I'm just not in that sector, so I don't know. But what I do see is a lot of, I do see indoor malls being converted to new urbanism with mixtures of outdoor shopping and residential combined with walkability. And then 20 years later, I see them turn those into indoor malls. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting sector. I'm just not comfortable with myself, but I got a lot of clients that love it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I become flabbergasted with it. I, I don't get it, right? Like I, I don't get it. Like if you were to ask me about cap rates, I would probably have the blank stare in my face with the exception of, and this is the part where I contradict myself, is uh, with the exception of residential units. When you ask me cap rates and relative to residential units, like um, multiple, you know, multiplexes, 24 units, 100 units, 320 units. I understand that. Uh, I don't understand the commercial side of it, commercial side of it being the uh, malls or, uh, or the, uh, you know, stores out, you know, the 
the, the regular stores, the outdoor stores, indoor malls. I don't understand anything of that. And I'll give you an example. You take, and at least it work, this is the way it works here. If you take a Starbucks and you divide it up, put two bedrooms, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a kitchen, um, a living room, a TV, that property, uh, 50 by 100, just say is worth a million dollars. Now, what you do now, you put in a drive-through, you uh, put in an in and an out, you put in some parking spots, you take out the bedrooms, you take a, you keep the washrooms because men's and ladies, you put in a counter, you uh, serve coffee, you have some chairs instead of a living room, and all of a sudden that property sells for $5 million. And it's the same damn square footage, same damn location, same damn everything. It's to me, that's flabbergasting. I, I just, you know, it, it seems stupid to me. Now, I understand because it has to do with the amount of business you can make, but it still sounds stupid to me. <laughs> so I never understood it. It doesn't make logical sense to me. So I've always avoided it. Yeah. Well, I think that in those things, I think it's uh, FOMO as much as anything. Yeah. Because it is driven on income and what you can possibly, what the business can make by being in that location. But where you really drive the prices is the threat that if they leave, another coffee company is going to come in there and dilute their business. And so that's what keeps the prices supported. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a, how much you can square footage and the fact that if I leave, how badly does someone want to come in behind me? You're absolutely right. And again, that's why I said for me, it just sounds like madness or like, like the malls. You pay uh, just say $10,000 a month of rent. And that's up to you. You make a million. If you make more than a million dollars, you have to pay two uh, percent of your sales. Um, why? Oh, well, because the more you make, the more the mall makes. And I'm going. Wait a minute. I took the risk. I did all that, and you're getting your ten thousand dollars a month. What the hell do you care? How's this any of your damn business? No, it is their business. That's how it works. It's uh, butt backwards to me. You know, it's like I uh, get into business. Some I hire an employee. When I was like, oh, I'm an original employee. I've been there for 10 years. I own part of your company. No, you got a salary. Oh, well, you know, I didn't get enough. You should pay me more. Why? Right? Like, it's it's just but backwards to me. You know what I mean? Like somebody, it's like taking ownership of a company when you know it's successful. But while it's failing, just pay me my minimum. And if you go bankrupt, that's too bad for you. That, that's the way I view it. I know it's not right. That's the way I view it. So that's why I avoid commercial because... I, again, everything seems about ba backwards to me. So I, I try to avoid it as much as possible. Um, I'm, I'm totally into the residential. And the other way I look at it is, again, it goes back to the office towers. Look what happened there. Now, everyone needs a place to live. Doesn't necessarily mean the home I'm selling they need. Doesn't necessarily mean that they need an apartment or a house or, or a townhouse. Everyone will be different. But everyone needs a place to live. Everyone needs a place to sleep. Not everyone needs a place to work that's not at home. So I think uh, residential is the safest route in terms of investments. And that's just my opinion. And I seem to be uh, finding it that it's easiest to get the uh, the loans for those as well. So that's just Absolutely. my view. Yeah. So that's awesome. Now, you're obviously, you didn't start off as uh, just real estate. So I'm guessing based on what you said, you're an accountant. Yeah, I'm a great accountant, um, and um, I've never done a tax return, though, including my own, <laughs> because I firmly believe that uh, if you're an accountant and you do your own taxes, you've just got a fool for a client. Yeah. So I always like to outsource that. That makes sense. Absolutely. Awesome. 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 So what advice would you give to a person watching this, this video or listening to it? who is interested in either getting into some form of entrepreneurship, some form of business, or interested in, in starting their real estate journey, but have some hesitations, not sure what to, where to start or where, how to start, what would you say to them? Well, I would say as far as the first one goes, the best piece of advice I ever heard was maybe 20 years ago from a CFO of a, he had started and then demoted himself to CFO because he only wanted to be involved in finance. And he said, the reason I did that, I'm the founder of a company who's the CFO. Why? He said, because I never want to do anything that I don't love for two reasons. If I'm having to do it as part of my company growth and I don't love it, I'm probably going to suck at it. And secondly, I'm going to burn out. So if I only do what I love, hire other people to do the other things, I'm guaranteeing my success because all the other components needed to make my business a success will be taken care of by people who love to do that. And that lets me do what I want. So he was able to just do the finance part and loved it. So I think that would be the thing is you got to find what you love, find a way to monetize it if possible, but don't start a business 
and try to do everything for too long. As quickly as you can, spread the load because those key hires or partners will drive growth much more quickly than it will from you hanging on to maximize your return on your effort. Make sense? Absolutely. From a real estate perspective, time is your friend. Time is not an enemy. If there's anybody out there who's old enough to remember the days of the Christmas savings clubs, please email me so we can commiserate on our old age. You used to be able to contribute to a Christmas fund savings plan. And then every year in December, that money that you had saved all year long, you got to spend on Christmas gifts for others. Forced savings plans, whether it's one of those, whether it is a 401k or a retirement plan, or whether it's bricks and mortar real estate, which is much harder to onload and offload quickly. Those are all ways that force you to slow down and take advantage of the breaks that government are going to give you. My favorite calculation in all of finance world is the internal rate of return. Because that takes a rental property or a business or whatever you're doing. And it says, add together every source of benefit from owning that property. Are you making $100 a month in cash flow? That's $1,200 a year. Is your property appreciating 5% a year and you bought it for $100,000? Then that first year, you made $5,000. Is the tenant paying your mortgage that's probably a couple hundred dollars a month your first year. There's another two to three thousand dollars. And then there's depreciation, which is the government's gift that's pretend. You get to pretend that your property loses one twenty-seventh of its value every year, and you get to deduct that from your taxes. So if that's on a hundred thousand dollars, if that's five hundred bucks a month, that's six thousand dollars a year. Add all those up. Did I make really just $1,200 on a $100,000 asset? No, I made $1,200 plus $5,000 plus $500 plus $3,000. That's a pretty healthy return. Absolutely. But I had to be patient to get it, didn't I? Yes, definitely. So I love patience. And then the last thing I would say, I don't know if you've gotten your copy yet or not, but I wrote a book that is designed to take a real estate investor through their entire life cycle using that compounding interest on the government's dollars. It's called Lifetime Tax-Free Wealth, the 1031 Investor, the Real Estate Investor's Guide to 1031 Exchanges. And it has all of these scenarios along with case studies we've been talking about. And I would say grab that and then find the niche in real estate that you like and then start learning and go for it. Awesome. Love that. Now, in light of time, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions before we get into what I call the lightning round. And the second last question is going to be, how do you know you've had a successful day? Well, when I wake up and put my feet on the floor, that's the start of a successful day because the alternative, not so much. <laughs> but I would say the end of a successful day, of course, that's the period in time, John, where I lay there and I spend just a moment and I say, you know, Lord, thank you for a great day. I haven't cussed. I haven't cheated. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't lost my temper, but it is seven o'clock in the morning. So I'm going to need some help the rest of the day. The successful day ends when I look around me and my wife, my children, my friends are smiling. That's when it's been a good day. Amazing. I, now I noticed that I, I love that answer. It's always about experience. You know, usually when I ask that question, it's always about experiences and it's less about funds. You know what I mean? Like a lot of times people say, what's success? Oh, I made this much or I made that much. I have not gotten uh, uh, an answer that of how much I made yet. So I'm batting 100% on this one. So awesome. Love that answer. Now, last but not least is where do people find you? And additionally, where do they find your book? Got it. So the book's available on Amazon, uh, Lifetime Tax-Free Wealth, The Real Estate Investor's Guide to 1031 Exchanges, or just Google up Dave Foster 1031 book. It'll get you there. We have created, because I saw early on that the greatest need in this industry was not more people to do it. It was teaching because nobody knew about it. So we created our entire presence to be all about education. And all you've got to do is go to the1031investor.com. There's a 47-part YouTube video series. There's calculators. There's articles that we've written. There's opportunities to talk directly to me and my staff to help kickstart your career and answer questions as you're looking. Because like with everything in life, advanced planning, 
makes a much better product. And whether it's a 1031 exchange, don't start thinking about it when you're ready to sell a property. Start thinking about it when you're thinking about what's my next step? Should I make a 1031 exchange part of that? And that's so the1031investor.com. Fantastic. Awesome. All right. Now let's get into the lightning round, which is just a few fun questions. Gosh, you stressed me with those. There's more. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Oh no. This one's going to be fun. It's going to be, I I think you're going to like this topic. What is your favorite food and why? I'll take favorite foods for 600 bat. We were having this debate just two nights ago with my family. And the question is, there's just a little twist on the question. If you could only eat one type of food the rest of your life, what would it be? And just without even thinking, for me, it's Thai. Thai food. Because there's sweet, there's spicy, there's savory, there's cold, there's hot. Thai food, hands down. Thai food is good. I get it. Makes sense. Get a variety. Awesome. All right. Second, la- a second question. Favorite vacation spot and why? I think I kind of know the answer to this already, but. <laughs> uh, if I am on my own boat, there is a little chain of keys about 70 miles west of Key West called the Dry Tortugas. You can only get there by boat or seaplane. It's a Civil War fort on an island. Nobody lives there but the Rangers. It is the most stunning place to visit because it is like you are going back in time 200 years on land and living in an aquarium on the water. The Dry Tortugas just off Key West, Florida. Nice, nice. No, I was not going to say War Road, Minnesota. (laughs) I didn't think so, but... Oh boy. <laughs> it was one of those things I asked you and I kind of had an idea it was going to be around the Florida area. I just didn't know exactly where. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Third question is going to be your favorite book or podcast. This is my favorite podcast, of course. Hands of course. down. Um, favorite book. You know, I am working through it with a couple young men that I mentor, The Richest Man in Babylon. Okay, I've heard of that one before. Which is an awesome short read about financial discipline and how to build wealth from the perspective of a merchant in ancient Babylon. So it's fun to read. It's timeless in its perspective. That's a great one. Um, Whatever Happened to Penny Candy is up there as well. That's by a guy named Richard Marbury. It's written at the eighth grade level, so I can understand it. And it is literally the best primer on inflation and inflation's impacts on society that I've ever read, ever, hands down. What shapes my entire life is the wisdom that comes to me in the Bible by God speaking to me. Love that. Awesome. Last but not least is if you were given unlimited amount of money, but 48 hours to spend it, what you spend, you get to keep. What you don't spend gets taken away. What would you do? Okay, what I spend, I get to, this is like Brewster's Millions. Yeah, yeah. That old Richard Pryor movie, isn't it? Yeah? So what I spend, I get to keep. Correct. Oh, I think there's a, how much am I getting, by the way? Unlimited amount. Oh, okay. Whatever you want. I would go buy every available share of Berkshire Hathaway, Google, and Amazon, and Walmart. I would buy every available share, and with the other 47 hours and 45 minutes, I'd just start drinking pina coladas. <laughs> there we go. That's very simple. There we go. Pina coladas and stocks. There you have it, folks. Now you found your way to wealth. <laughs> Love that. That from the real estate guy, right? That's right. <laughs> never bet against Warren Buffett. Uh, never bet against banks, insurance companies, and Warren Buffett. That's a, that's my life wisdom right there. There we go. Have it. Mic drop moment. <laughs> awesome. Dave. It has been phenomenal. I want to say thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. I truly enjoyed it. It was fun. Absolutely. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below. Thanks for tuning in to The John Papaloni Show.